Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Green Finance Podcast. This is Yulia Chutina, Senior Reporter at Tearsheet. Green finance is not just about investing in clean energy or carbon sequestration. The core of the problem is sustainability. How do we create a financial system that enables people to thrive over the long term? A lot of the focus today goes on the E in ESG investing, which represents the environmental factor like carbon footprints and emissions. The latter two parts, social and governance, are often overlooked, even though they're just as important. Today, I'd like to explore what the S in ESG stands for. My guest is Timothy Flacca, who is the co-founder and executive director of Commonwealth. Commonwealth is a national nonprofit helping the financially vulnerable build security. I've invited Tim to help me understand the social factors behind sustainable investing and how we can increase equity and inclusion in fintech by using clever product design. Awesome. So very lovely to meet you, Timothy. And um, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. And I'm super excited to talk about uh, one of the topics that are a bit less uh, discussed within the ESG community, which is um, the social factors uh, in ESG. Um, and I'd like to start with a central question behind the S in ESG investing. So the social aspect of sustainable investing. And this is how can a company manage its relationships with its workforce and the society in which it operates? What types of social factors can affect a company's financial performance? Yeah, well, I'm really glad to be here. So thank you for the opportunity. And feel free to call me call me Tim. Um, I guess w- where I'd like to start with that question is, uh, and I should be clear, my context is the U.S. So those are the, you know, the, the that's the frame that I bring. Um, but there's really just over and over again, we see research that points that so many of us are living paycheck to paycheck in the financial present and enormous amounts of stress are associated with that. By some estimates, you know, 78%, you know, even if that's on the high side, maybe it's half, but, you know, enormous numbers of people do say that they really live from each paycheck, you know, one to the next. We see research from the Federal Reserve that shows uh, 36% of us don't have $400 to handle an emergency. And by the way, you know, we had a chance to disaggregate that and look at that data uh, by race and gender and income. And perhaps not surprisingly, that 36% pops up to 58% if we look at the households under $60,000 in annual income, which is just slightly below the median in the U.S., and it pops up to 70% for Hispanic households under $60,000 and just a crazy 72% for black holes households under $60,000. So, you know, unsurprisingly, there's also an element of uh, race and gender, you know, that comes into this. But to go back to your question, so if we think about social factors and what a responsible company might want to be looking for, you know, our observation and insight is that they might want to be looking for the social factors where it's a pretty clear intuition that it has an effect on the business performance. And, you know, there is lots of evidence which we can talk about, but it's also just common sense that if a big fraction of your workforce is spending considerable amounts of stress and energy, thinking about whether the, you know, literally the bank balance is going to be high enough when the bill comes due, or whether or not the you know various different forms of, of credit payments that are due 
what order are they coming in and will there be enough cash? What happens to the fact that my hours were perhaps lower this week or this month and yet my expenses have stayed the same? Uh, by one estimate that I believe Mercer uh, concluded $250 billion in lost productivity occurs every year in the US because workers are, are distracted by their finances. There are other you know, data that show, um, I don't have the figures in front of me, but it's on the order of magnitude of, of a dozen or more hours a month that workers are spending on the job trying to manage financial issues. So our, our insight from that is that workers, uh, sorry, I should say employers are actually in a really powerful position to help their workers have that short-term financial security. And when that occurs, then all of the things you might imagine come with it or can. People are more likely to be present on the job. They're less likely to be absent from work. They're more likely to provide higher quality uh, customer service, be more you know, productive employees. There's one study out of University of Pittsburgh that actually correlates lower truck driver accidents with higher financial security. So there are all these benefits that come, some of which you might not think of at first. I've heard people talk about lower shrinkage, you know, in the retail industry, wanting to make sure inventory doesn't walk out the door. These things correlate with, uh, with workers who have less financial stress. So then it comes, what, what can you do? First, it starts by identifying the outcome that the employer is trying to achieve and being clear about what that is. And then going through one's uh, employment practices, one's compensation practices, and what sort of benefits one offers to really inventory them and say, are they engineered to achieve that kind of stability, especially for my hourly lower paid workers that would allow them to walk into the workplace with less of that financial anxiety. So that's the opportunity we see is for employers to make that a priority and for the ESG community to recognize that this absolutely belongs in the S factor and can play a, a constructive role in realizing both better social outcomes and also you know, better firm performance. Wonderful. When an employer wants to incorporate such a strategy, um, what are the tools currently available? Is you know, data is often cited as a resource that's lacking in the space. So I'm wondering, um, are there any you know social data kind of um, resources available or currently being taken into account? Yeah, it's, of course, that's a natural question for sure. And you know, I I cited some of them in passing, and perhaps if we have a opportunity, we can send you some links to. You know, put on your website or similar. So there are a number of studies that make this case writ large about the value of uh, financial security for your workers or the threat that happens when it's when it's not present. The second thing I would say, and you can tell me if this gets to your question or not, is that as individual employers, uh, we have access to data. We can inventory what it is that we offer to our workers. We can assess our workforce to find out how many of them you know, are experiencing this short-term financial insecurity and the anxiety that goes with it. We can benchmark it against things like the Federal Reserve figure that I cited. You know, One can intentionally survey and ask one's workforce the same questions to understand where they are on something like having that $400. So one can generate some of that data. 
uh, themselves. And for larger firms, many of them already have relationships with benefit providers that often have sophisticated tools uh, either to assess one's own workforce or to draw from their full client base. And so I, I often encourage firms to, to ask. Sometimes they just aren't aware of the resources that their retirement record keeper or their benefits consultant may have to help them understand uh, the issue. Definitely. At Commonwealth, you argue that um, product design can improve financial security and make the financial system more inclusive. And I'm wondering here, how, how can product design improve financial security in the end? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and maybe there's a, a through line from the conversation about ESG. You know, one of the things that uh, I hope I, I, I got across is that what we really have to focus on is not just the input side of what we do uh, as individuals or employers, uh, but the, the output and the outcome side. And right, so the outcome that we spend a lot of time thinking about is more financial security and less um, energy, time, money, and stress spent on, on, on managing in the short term. And that really lies at the heart of this concept of inclusive design as well, is being clear that it's not just what are the features and products that financial service providers offer, but are they engineered and designed to achieve these kinds of outcomes and specifically for the people who, in, in our view, uh, both have the greatest need for financial stability uh, and where the greatest benefits for society and for individual households are likely to occur. And that insight, that sort of focus on, on the outcomes led us uh, honestly several years ago to start a new body of research where we you know, just realized that when you work in, in finance and personal finance, it's very natural, it's necessary, it's really table stakes to focus on the hard measures. You know, what are your credit scores? What is your bank balance? What is your retirement account balance? All of these things. But while those are essential, we realized that you know, people can still not have a feeling of financial security, not have the sense of stability that unlocks that higher performance of the workplace, that quite frankly makes us better parents, better community members, better citizens. Uh, and so we had to not just look at the hard numbers, we had to sort of push ourselves to say, what is it? that is, you know, puts those pieces together and allows people to have the kind of outcome that we want. And so what we did is, is spend a lot of time with low and moderate income households and individuals uh, who exhibited and reported those feelings of financial stability. And by spending time with and, and learning from, we identified some of the characteristics that seemed to accompany those, those, the, that outcome that we were aiming for, that stability. And the first one we noticed was that um, these people tended to view their financial lives as, as a journey, that where they were at a particular moment, they understood in the context of where they might be heading and where they wanted to head. And so this seems like an important insight from a designer's perspective to avoid the very natural trap of really uh, speaking to people about the situation that they're in at the moment and recognizing that people who feel most financially secure, probably most empowered, understand that they are that they are going somewhere. 
And that really led to the second insight, which is that um, people who feel financially secure have and are comfortable with having aspirations and goals that are often rooted in deep values. Think about the parent who's, who's really um, highly motivated about what they can do for their children. And, uh, and so that's also a design principle that we think can be really useful to financial product designers. It can be natural sometimes to shy away from something that might seem sort of squishy or subjective like people's values and aspirations, but it's actually what we found the opposite, that that's a source of strength for people and, and, and optimism. And really the third thing that we saw is that people who uh, report feeling financially secure have access to and celebrate a network of people like them who are on this financial journey. And I think there's a couple things going on there from what we found. One is that that network provides really you know, true material benefits and advice and information and opportunities to talk things through. But there's also a, a sense of identity at play that people like me can be uh, in a good place with their finances. So those three core insights um, have really formed the basis of a, a new approach to inclusive design that we're trying to uh, put out into the world and, and support product designers to embrace in, in their work. That's really wonderful. I really like um, one of the uh, paragraphs from your research that says, rather than putting responsibility for change on the individual, designers can have a much greater impact by focusing on changing products and distribution channels that have been historically discriminatory. And um, would you be able to give us a little bit more insight on the impact that, you know, focusing on changing the features and distribution channels can have rather than developing products that tell people to just act differently? Yeah, thank you for that question. So I'll, I'll get a little bit wonky here for a moment, but I think it'll help illustrate the point. Um, let me just say at the, you know, at the beginning that it's, it's really natural, I think, as a designer, um, you know, we all hear the phrase of, of meeting people's needs. And so, I, I, you know, the, 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 um, the risk which you've identified is that in our quest to respond to people's needs, that we fall into the trap of, of really seeing that person as being the only agent, you know, the only sort of source uh, uh, of direction in their lives. And one thing that just comes up over and over again, at least in, in my view, is that so many of us are saying, I, I know I'm part of this, but I'm not enough. I can't do this on my own, right? I, I, I personally saw signs of that in our conversations about race. Like I can try to do the right thing and how I treat people individually, but that's not enough. Like that's not gonna solve uh, centuries of institutional racism. And the same thing applies in personal finance. Um, People just often, not that they necessarily use these words, but what they what we hear them saying is, I know I have a part in this. I want to be in charge of my finances, but I can do everything right, and it's still not going to result in the outcome. So with that as the sort of conceptual part, um, I'll give you an example. We have spent and I continue to spend a lot of energy trying to modify and extend the U.S. workplace-based retirement system to focus and encompass short-term financial issues. What that means really is offering features that allow people to build up a cushion of liquid savings and draw down on that 
again, if you've heard in my, you know, my prior comments, this concept of short-term instability and volatility is just an enormous issue. So that would be an example of trying to take an existing system and extend it so that it, it really meets what is for most of us the most pressing and recurring need, which is the immediate. Uh, and then what, what can come from that is reorienting an enormously powerful, well-institutionalized, supported by public policy, supported by a very sophisticated industry, which is our retirement savings system, reorienting it so that it actually speaks in addition to needs that are much more uh, are much more likely to be felt by low and moderate income people, and honestly, much more likely to be held uh, to be experienced by Black and Latinx and female-led households in this country. So we still need to do the micro product design well, and there's a ton of uh, information, you know, out there in the universe, but also on our own website about how we recommend you might think about that. It's buildcommonwealth.org slash inclusive design. But at the same time, there's a bigger picture to your point about changing the landscape, the distribution channels and the orientation of a powerful system that you know, frankly allows individual actors, I mean, an individual product designer inside an individual firm to have a much bigger reach than just what they're able to do with their own product if they're thinking about what role they play in reorienting that larger system in terms of what problem it's focused on uh, and how it presents that problem. So, and there are other examples. We're doing some similar work on earlier stages to try and extend the 529 education savings system in this country, which is also a really, you know, really an asset, a crown jewel of our financial system, but overwhelmingly serves higher income better off households, what can we do to make that system more accessible, more inclusive, more inviting, and frankly, more relevant to the households that most need it? Uh, so it's really across the board looking for those ways um, to take the, you know, the large uh, pillars of our financial landscape and, and think carefully about who they're serving and for what purposes and what we can do to try and reorient them. That's great. That's so important, especially in these current macroeconomic times um, where, you know, you see inflation going up and there's just so much uncertainty and financial worries and anxieties, uh, especially, as you said, that they fall on the shoulders of uh, minority groups and um, it doesn't affect everyone in the U.S. equally. And here, um, I'm wondering if you see any type of change in relationships between employers and um, employees. And another thing I wanted to touch on here was adequate wages, you know, given the rise in inflation and, um, you know, the role that wages play here. But there's also an argument that, you know, adequate wages are not sufficient to achieve financial security. So, what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, so many good questions there. So let me just say first, I'm so glad you brought up wages. There is a risk in the kind of work that we do and, and the things I'm saying that it will be heard as a substitute for a decent or fair wage. And that's really not our intention. Um, you know, in the same way that the, the credit scores and the bank balances are table stakes and personal finance, 
having a, a sufficient household income, you know, it's really table stakes to achieve financial stability and security. Having said that, I also agree with the second part of what you said. Uh, that's not enough. You know, for most of us, we need tools to convert our income into those outcomes I spoke about earlier, into the, the feeling of security and the, the reality of security. And in the U.S., you know, the way our, our system and our economy has evolved, a lot of, especially for lower income workers, uh, the workplace is often one of, if not the best resource to get those tools. Um, so we, we have to both look at the adequacy of the income and what are the, what are the levers and, and tools that people have to turn that income, you know, to manage their financial lives. And, uh, you know, we think about something even as straightforward as, as how an employer pays their workers, uh, it has a really dramatic impact. Um, if you are a, a worker who doesn't use the mainstream banking system, uh, which there are a lot of in the United States, and your employer offers a quality pay card product that has features like savings and has you know, good financial terms, uh, you have really helped that worker take enormous strides towards turning their income into the day-to-day -day financial life that they need. Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I think you're you're absolutely right on the on the necessity of of a fair wage and adequate wage. And I think we've seen some real movement in this country in the last several years around that. But I don't think we should allow ourselves, you know, to take uh, not to focus on the rest of the picture. And and if it helps, I sometimes point out. I think many of us have come across people in our lives who actually have quite a bit of income and yet still experience a lot of, uh, they just don't have their financial lives in a very good place. And so it just illustrates that the connection between income and, uh, and the outcome we want is, is not automatic. Even on the, in the other case of someone who has plenty of income, they can still end up not in a good place. So we need to keep our, our eye on the full, on the full picture. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, it was such an insightful conversation, and um, I hope to have you on the podcast soon. Thanks so much for the chance to talk. I really enjoyed it. To read the transcript of our conversation, head over to tearsheet.co. If you want to know more about the intersection of finance and sustainability, you can subscribe to our free green finance newsletter in your inbox every other week to get more insights and research into this topic. That's also where I'll be featuring every new Green Finance podcast episode. So sign up to stay up to date with all our content. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Green Finance podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts.